Welcome to the Purpose and Principles podcast. I'm Max Brown, and my guest today is Scott Miller. And Scott, entering your 24th year at Franklin Covey, um, serves as the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership, and he's the host of the Franklin Covey-sponsored On Leadership with Scott Miller. It's a weekly leadership webcast, a podcast, and a newsletter that features interviews with renowned business titans, authors, thought leaders, and it's distributed to more than 6 million business leaders worldwide. He's the host of the weekly radio program, Great Life, Great Career with Scott Miller on iHeartMedia's KNRS 105.9. And this radio program and podcast provide insight and strategies from Franklin Covey's leadership principles. Um, but the thing that intrigued me was this new book that he just brought out. And, uh, and what we really want to talk about today, although I'm sure we'll be able to bounce many different places, but this latest book, this latest book called Management Mess to leadership success. Become the leader you would follow. And Scott, I'm just grateful you joined me today to have this conversation. Max, the honor is mine. Thank you for the platform. Excited to be here. It's awesome. Thank you. And uh, you know, there's a lot on leadership. I mean, certainly you've been in this this industry now for, for decades, and we've been talking about leadership for a long time. So why this book? Why this message when there's so much out there? Yeah, it's a, it's a very fair question. Like you, I consume a lot of leadership books. I've yeah. read hundreds and hundreds. I've a, I host a podcast much like yourself. And I felt like, this will sound cliche, but I felt like they needed one more leadership book. And that okay. was mine. And, and because of all the hundreds of leadership books that I'd written, mm-hmm. I'd never read one mm-hmm. that was raw real, relatable, that talked about kind of the underbelly of leadership. I think so many of these leadership books that you and I have both read, that your listeners have read, are very aspirational, right? They're written by Fortune 50 CEOs or academics or professors that in many cases, some cases, never had to hire someone or fire someone, right? Or run a PL or have really high courage conversations. Now, that's not always the case with professors, but it's often the case. So I wanted to write a book from my own leadership journey, both being a leader of people mm-hmm. in a leadership organization mm-hmm. where I'm supposed to be a leadership expert. And I wanted to say, you know what? Leadership is hard. Mm-hmm. It's unrelenting. It can be thankless. It's not for everyone. In fact, not everyone should be a leader of people, mm-hmm. probably including me. Mm-hmm. So I wrote this book called Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. Mm-hmm. And I basically shared 30 stories of really how I had a mess. I kind of, you know, wrecked it up or said it wrong or did the wrong thing. And in the hopes that the reader would not step in the same potholes that I was in, right? And mm. do this, don't do that. Say this, don't say that. And I think it's because it was so raw mm-hmm. and vulnerable. I mean, I share a lot of things. People ask me all the time, how did you stay employed? How, how are you still employed by writing this book? Like you, the speaking thing better work out for me because my wife says I'll never get hired again, right? Who would ever hire me as a leader? But I do emphatically believe that leadership of people is not for everyone. Not everyone should be an anesthesiologist, God forbid. Not everyone should be a Mm -hmm. commercial airline pilot. And I think too often we just, in organizations, promote the best independent producer, Mm -hmm. right? The most creative digital designer or the top producing salesperson. And then they become the leader and then they like wreck havoc. They do damage to people because they don't know, oh, leadership is different. I don't just take what I did and force it on people. So that's why I think the book has done so well because it was a fresh voice in a really cluttered leadership space. 
Well, I, I, I think you're onto something there. And, and truthfully, you know, I have a bunch of books, you know, scattered around me, even as we speak and stacks of ones that I'm currently reading. I see them and, back there. Yeah. Yeah. That's the latest stack. Right. And, um, and it's interesting because you wrote really cool. When I read the 30 challenges, I loved all of them. And I want to talk about just a few of them today. I know we can't touch everything, but just really cool. And I thought it was really nice because each one of those is a different book, as you articulate at the end of the book, that, you know, each one of these challenges, you could go and do deeper dives on every single topic. And what I'm thinking about today is, you know, some leaders will say, gosh, you know what? I'm not a management mess. I've got all my stuff put together. So, Scott, good for you. I don't need that book. What do you say to those folks? They who- are arrogant. They are not <laughs> self-aware. They are ignorant. And uh, I, I can't help you if you think that because you're a narcissist. No, honestly, I don't think anybody thinks that, right? Yeah. I, mean, I, I understand your question. Right. I think anyone who is a leader of people recognizes that we're all on a journey. Yes. That leadership is a choice to quote Dr. Covey, not a position. And these 30 challenges are, quite frankly, you know, they're they're curated from all of Franklin Covey's content and the things that we've seen for four decades mm-hmm. leaders struggle with. So pick any of them and bring it on. Well, it's fantastic. And to that point, I, I agree with you. I don't think any leader who has done this for very long would ever say, I can't improve. But I do think that it's interesting that you started with, let's start with humility, And that first challenge of humility is really, really awesome. And you quote Dr. Covey, of course, by saying humble leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. In my own book, I wrote a book called Leadership Vertigo. And in it, I wrote, I said, humility is not timidity or weakness. It's confidence, it's wisdom, and it's grace combined with the knowledge that we're all imperfect. Knowing that we're all perfect. That'd be a good book. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, But but I'm with you. So when I read that and you started with humility, I went, yes, I love this message. So why that message? And you shared a very poignant part. Like you said, you you basically are talking very real in this book throughout it about lessons you've learned along the way. Yeah. Thank you, Max. I started with this one because I think it's one of my biggest messes. Mm. I mean, let's be honest. We all have messes in our life, mm-hmm. and everybody else knows them. Max, mm-hmm. your receptionist, your partner, your vendors, your clients, your spouse, your colleagues, they all know your messes. Yep. So the premise of my book is just to own your mess mm-hmm. because as a leader, when you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs. Mm-hmm. Not, not license bad behavior or wallow in your messes, but to recognize them. So my first and biggest messed mess is this idea of demonstrating humility. I mean, those who know me know I'm not a humble person. Hmm. I'm a fairly cocky, arrogant person. I later in life came to appreciate the role that humility plays in leadership. Hmm. I think in my first couple of decades in business, I thought that leadership was charisma, It was confidence. It was clarity and communication, sometimes faking until you make it, right? And I I thought that effective leaders were loud and forceful. They were always in persuasion mode and selling mode. I'd read Jim Collins' work around the level five leader and humility, but I kind of just didn't resonate with that, right? I had a big personality and I gravitated. I cleaved people with big personalities, people who are a little more shy and retiring and contemplative, they generally frustrate me Mm. because that's not who I am like. Mm. And we all tend to, you know, associate with those who are generally like us. They all have unconscious biases there. So I generally thought that 
shy and retiring leaders were weaker leaders. Mm -hmm. That humility was actually a weakness. Mm -hmm. And then I did more research and read more like you have and realized, no, actually, humility is born out of confidence. That's right. Like you say, confidence, people who are confident can be humble. That's right. It's people who are arrogant who are incapable of being humble. So as I have uh, myself moved from mess to success, from being you know, less arrogant and more confident, mm -hmm. I can demonstrate humility. And I think you hit it right in the head, Dr. Covey's quote, you know, humility is more about what is right than being right. I spent most of my career being right. Mm -hmm. Or if for some reason, right? Hiding some insecurity, not feeling competent or confident in my skills, mm -hmm. always feeling like I had imposter syndrome. So for me, humility wasn't even an option. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until, I'll be honest, late 40s, mm -hmm. early 50s, mm -hmm. where I felt like my skill set, my confidence, and my competence would allow me to be humble. So I wrote about some pretty embarrassing, horrifying stories where mm -hmm. I think showing humility is a very attractive relatable leadership competency that well, I came to life. And, and for me, it, it really goes to the back end of the book here, what you say, become the leader you want to follow or that you would follow. It's very difficult to follow someone who is, is, is really arrogant because that arrogance shows up in some pretty destructive ways towards the people that they're leading. Read my book. That's a testament to that. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, in some areas of my life, I've been an early bloomer. In other areas of my life, I was a late bloomer. And I've always been kind of an early bloomer in securing the next job, in, in securing, upgrading my technical skills. I think I've been a bit of a lagger on my emotional intelligence. I think it wasn't, I wasn't married till I was 41. I was single till I was 41. Mm -hmm. Never planned on being married. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, something I desired. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, and my wife is much younger than I am. And I give my wife, Stephanie, a lot of credit for really making me more emotionally agile and mm -hmm. more intellectually nimble to appreciate, you said what? You're going to do what? Mm -hmm. You're going to wear what? Right? Stephanie has really helped me mature in recognizing that words have meaning and, and you can't just say whatever's on your mind. Yeah. You can't just, you know, throw a grenade and run out of the room. Mm -hmm. I've really learned that humility, it can be a weakness, right? We know people who are too humble mm -hmm. and they will never take credit and they'll put all the attention on somebody else. No, 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 mm -hmm. no, no. Mm -hmm. Take the credit. You wrote the book. Mm -hmm. You went out of 80 cities and you sold the book. Mm -hmm. Take the credit for it. I think there's a fine balance because you can become a martyr or have false humility or become a victim right. even with too much humility. I think it, it takes um, agility to be proud of what your skills are. I don't mm -hmm. think pride is a bad thing. I think some cultures and religions demonize pride. Mm -hmm. I'm very proud of some of the things I've done. Mm -hmm. I haven't done anything on my own. Mm -hmm. So humility can be taken too far as well too. Right. For me, no, it's, no risk for me though in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and for me, the truth is, is I, I find that humility, like you said, is it, it can become a false humility, which really isn't humility. It can. Yeah. Or it can because become we, arrogance right. on the other side. Humility for me is really the, the balance between the it two. It is. And it's, and it's different for everyone. Mm -hmm. There's no right formula. Mm -hmm. You know, I work in a company, Franklin Covey, that's mm -hmm. a very conservative organization. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it, it reflects a lot of the values of the dominant culture and people in Utah, which I mm-hmm. quite frankly love. I'm not part of that original culture, right? Mm-hmm. From the East Coast and Florida. And, and I'm Catholic, so I was a bit of a bull in a china shop mm-hmm. at the Franklin Covey Company. I had a great career here. And I've had to learn when to toot my horn, mm-hmm. when to be proud of my accomplishments and not let that be my go-to, right? Mm-hmm. But, but, but also not be so humbled where I don't take credit for what I've done also. Mm-hmm. It's, a, just, it's, a, it's a constant recalibration, I think, for a lot of leaders, including me. Well, I think that's the key is that it's, const- it's a constant recalibration for all of us in all of the 30-day ch- or the 30 challenges that you mentioned. Yeah, uh, you know, and and so let's let's go through a couple of them if you don't mind. You, sure. you bump into you know, let's go to humility, and then I just really resonated with a few of these, and it's really going to show you know where where I kind of live as I pick and choose some of these challenges. But I could have I could have pulled on any of them, but think abundantly was your next challenge. Yeah, think abundantly. Now a lot of people think that they're doing that. I think, but but why is this such an important concept? And how do you reveal it when you feel like maybe you're coming from a, a place of scarcity rather than abundance? Yeah. So a mutual friend of both of ours, mm-hmm. Dr. Stephen R. Covey, was the co-founder of our company. You have spoken on stage with Stephen. He was a mentor of, you, of yours for many yeah. years. Uh, Dr. Covey wrote the book, as you know, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Mm-hmm. That book is now in its 30th year, has sold 40 million copies, being re-released in May with new insights from one of his sons, Sean Covey. Mm-hmm. And it will sell another 30 million, 40 million copies in the coming decade or such. Dr. Covey in that book popularized a lot of terms. Mm-hmm. You know, mindset, first things first, big rocks, that kind of stuff. One of the concepts that he popularized, Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean he invented it, right? He named it, sequenced it, and then gave great context around it, was this idea of having a scarcity Mm -hmm. or an abundance mindset. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people confuse it as generosity, right? I Mm -hmm. put more money in the collection plate or – I no, it's not that. That's called generosity, I think, mm-hmm. is, that, is that all of us have deeply enculturated belief systems, paradigms, mindsets. Mm-hmm. And one of them that we operate in and governs all of our interactions is a scarcity thinking or abundance thinking. Mm-hmm. People that are scarce are scarce because they were probably raised that way mm-hmm. for some fear, right? Something happened with their finances. Their parents had a bankruptcy. They were always on the move. For whatever reason, they have a scarce mindset. does not mean they are a selfish person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It means that their default mindset is, well, I need to get mine. Mm-hmm. I need to get enough for me. It doesn't mean I'm going to screw you or you can't get yours. It's just I have to get mine first. What I don't have it is an abundance mindset where there is probably enough for all of us. When I say enough, I mean enough water, enough paper clips, enough budget at budgeting time, enough love, fame, enough respect, enough credit. And I write a lot about it in the book as leaders. I think one of the nests is – challenges we all face is this idea of having an abundance mindset Mm -hmm. is how much credit do you need when is it appropriate to shine the light on someone else Mm -hmm. how do you as a leader recognize that when you become a leader you have to take on a new mindset your job as a leader Mm -hmm. is now to get work done with and through other people Mm -hmm. that requires an abundance mindset that requires you to be a coach that's right be a mentor it requires you to be more patient. Yeah. It requires you to spend less time on your own development and more time on other people's development to build mm-hmm. capacity, capability. 
and not rush in and save the day. So this idea of having an abundance mindset, I think, is what the best leaders and the happiest people do, right? Mm-hmm. Is they is they they don't become martyrs, mm-hmm. they don't become victims, they don't think lose win, well, you can win and I'll lose. No, they're mm-hmm. just they're just cognizant of a quote that was told me once by one of my leaders. You'll never have enough until you've defined how much is enough. Hmm. I think abundant leaders also define how much is enough. I share some great stories how I was really, quite frankly, humbled by, by a particular employee who I'm very good friends with now. He ported to me and accused me of taking credit for all of his projects. I share a kind of riotous story about how it happened in the Cracker Barrel. I love the Cracker Barrel, by the way. I miss it in quarantine. My first revisit is the Cracker Barrel. Um, my, to my wife's horror. I'm the only person ever who wears cufflinks and wingtips and Cracker Barrel, but I'm there every Monday for big chicken and mashed potatoes, right? Who needs a therapist when you got the Cracker Barrel? I certainly don't. Long story short, I digress. I think abundantly is a decision. I think a lot of us naturally in our personal lives, with our budgets, with whatever it is, we have scarce tendencies. doesn't mean you're a bad person. I think the idea, Max, is to recognize that a lot of us rest comfortably back in a scarce mindset, and we have to progress and push ourselves to an abundance mindset. I, I agree with you. I um, I do think that, like you said, having a scarcity mentality doesn't make a person bad, but I think that having an abundance mentality helps us to live better. <laughs> and I, I do believe that. I've seen leaders who worked from a scarcity mindset and would weaponize really good things like recognition, for instance, because they were using it as a political tool or as a weapon to shame one person and value another, or, you know, as opposed to abundance mindset, which allows us to say, you know what, guys, there's plenty for everyone here. Let's all do this well, and let's do this together. I I agree with you. And the flip side is also true where there are Mm -hmm. cultures where you have to promote yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to take credit or someone will steal it from you Mm -hmm. or the leader is incapable of operating her or his division in a way where it doesn't matter whose idea it was. We're all together. We're all safe. We're all working. And that's not every culture, Mm -hmm. right? I think it's Mm -hmm. a bit Pollyanna for anyone to think Mm -hmm. that – you're going to get credit if you just put your head down and work hard. It's a balance, right? It's a constant balance of recognizing where you are. I think who taught this principle the most to me was my grandmother. Hmm. Past 15 years ago, 97, was widowed. Her husband died when her twin sons were 10. Okay. So my father and his brother were, um, I don't know what it's called when your dad dies, a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so my father's dad died when he was 10. His twin brother caught polio hmm. at the age of 16 perish a decade later, mm-hmm. later, spent several years in an iron lung, you know, not too dissimilar what's happening right now in the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Like everybody was freaking out even more so back then because you didn't know where it was and how you caught it. Mm-hmm. My grandmother had been widowed for about six years and she, she was in a widow's pension, mm-hmm. working in a school cafeteria to earn money to keep her family afloat. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, this is, 75 years ago, mm-hmm. 70 years ago, and the Knights of Columbus, which, as you know, is a philanthropic Catholic organization, mm-hmm. came to her house and offered to fund the iron lung for one of her twin sons, my father's twin. Mm-hmm. And my, my grandmother said, no, go pay for someone who can't afford it. Mm-hmm. 
my grandmother could not afford this iron lung. Mm. But the values that she had been raised with, an abundance mentality, mm-hmm. I, of course, was not alive. I've been told this story by many people in my family. Mm-hmm. I learned this story 25 years ago, and it has had a profound impact, I hope, not in the story I share in the book, mm. but in, in, in trying to enter into my relationships more cognizantly with an abundance mindset. If Agnes Miller on a widow's pension and a part-time lunch lady income can forego the Knights of Columbus offering to pay for her son's life or death iron lung yeah. to go help someone else, we all can be more thoughtful of how to be abundant. Well, you you trigger a lot of memories for me as well. I have a similar story with my own grandmother who as a young girl during depression times, a, a family that they knew well needed, desperately needed food. They desperately needed clothes. My My grandmother actually grew up more privileged. She wasn't uber wealthy by any means, but they were comfortable. And and her mother said, Evelyn, to my grandmother, her mother said, Evelyn, I need you to go give a dress to this young girl. She needs it more than you do. So she goes and gives one of her giveaway dresses, you know, not her favorite one. And her mom says, really, is that the best you can do? Is that really the best you can do? And And she went up and grabbed her favorite dress and gave it away. And I think there's real power in that. And I think there's real power in learning that we can do more. My sheep, I have a small sheep farm. And, and when, I, when, when there's abundance of food, they treat each other better. When there's a scarcity of food, and wow, even if there's a mentality of scarcity, they will push each other, they'll fight each other, and they'll compete. Even though there is plenty of food, if they see everyone hoarding towards one place, they'll all go towards that place as if it's the only place for a good source of food. Max, I think it's your leadership style because my sheep don't do that. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I need to come down there and I need to teach your sheep a few things. We got to spread it out. I just spread it out. That's all I'm saying. We spread it out. You know, you talked about coaching. Let's go to that challenge for a minute. You say coach continuously, and I think this is yeah. really true. As leaders become better coaches, we actually do encourage better outcomes. Would you say that coaches today, every leader should be a better coach? Well, naturally, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is challenge 18. I think I wrote about this because hopefully gone are the days where leaders are having a once-a-year sit-down mm-hmm. where everything is pent up and an annual performance appraisal, and they're just loading a bunch of you-know-what on the person, positive yep. and negative, yep. because they lacked the courage. They lacked the skills. They lacked the incumbency on every leadership role to coach continuously, to talk about the undiscussables, to move mm-hmm. outside your comfort zone. So I think it's coaching in real time. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean you send over somebody at the copy machine and tell them to add more toner, right? I think yeah. the mature leader knows that you can treat people differently and still treat everyone fairly. Mm-hmm. As I look back, at when I was the chief marketing officer of the firm, I had you know 35 people that reported up to me mm-hmm. and how I coached Jimmy was different than how I coached Jen, Mm -hmm. different than how I coached Charlie or Todd, right? Mm -hmm. Some people wanted it in private. Mm -hmm. Some people were just fine me calling them out in a staff meeting because they were quite comfortable Mm -hmm. having that lesson learned shared with others. Mm -hmm. But I have no problem with the CEO calling out anything I've done wrong because I'm quite more confident now. And I have a a fairly self-deprecating personality. I'm not, you know, my identity is not my job Mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. It was for decades. So I think this this challenge is really is understanding as a leader, your main job is to coach, build capacity. Mm -hmm. Your job is not to be the smartest person in the room. Mm -hmm. 
We quote Liz Wiseman, who wrote a phenomenal book called Multipliers. Mm -hmm. A dear friend of mine endorsed the book Management Mess. Mm -hmm. As a leader, your job is not to be the genius in the room, but mm -hmm. rather the genius maker mm -hmm. of others. And when you are confident and comfortable enough in your contribution, you can coach people to become more successful, more technically talented, earn more money, eclipse you in their title, and you're comfortable with that. You don't just all of a sudden one night you know, get to that maturity level. Sure, for me, it was 30 years. But the concept of coach continuously, I think, is to be calibrated, right? It's kind of like the clutch and the gas because it doesn't mean you stand behind someone and comment on everything they're doing. Each person probably needs to be coached a little bit differently at different intervals. Mm -hmm. That's what makes a great leader. Well, and, and for me, the big distinction in good coaches is that they realize coaching isn't just something we do. And in fact, it's not a disciplinary process. Coaching is about developing and building and lifting it's and a helping. Mindset too. It's a yeah. mindset. It really is. Yeah. Would you have a favorite coaching question or is it, or is it dependent on the person and who you're about to approach? Or, do you, or is there some yeah, like favorite questions? Here's what I say. Why are you doing that? <laughs> you know, it's a great question because a lot of us have been trained to ask questions. So, yeah. so what are your thoughts? Mm -hmm. Why are you doing that? You, you can question someone into oblivion, right? Yep. It's, a, it's a tactic that I actually don't like. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have a favorite question, co coaching question. I think every situation is just so different. I, I don't come about anything formulaically. You're not suggesting. You're not suggesting that I do. Right. I think coaching for me has been really around just recognizing everyone's got a journey. Mm -hmm. Everyone's got a story. Mm -hmm. Everyone's got a level of insecurity. Everyone's got mm -hmm. a mess. So I really try to figure out where is this person? Mm -hmm. Where are they mm -hmm. in their journey? Where are they in their confidence? How mm -hmm. strong is their private victory, right? Mm -hmm. As Dr. Covey would talk about it. Why is it weak? All of us have, quote, you know, gaps in our own private victory and our confidences. I try not to put my confidence level or my experience onto other people. Mm -hmm. Recognize why are they thinking this way? Mm -hmm. What have they or have they not been exposed to? What has their journey been? Mm -hmm. Is my way the way they need to do it? Their way might be very different than my way. It might get the same or even better result. Mm -hmm. I, can I check my own ego and my own narrative, Right. my own frame of reference? Why am I putting my process onto them? I, I don't have a favorite question. Sorry. No, that's great. I, I, for me – the thing that, that captured it really well just now is the way you're saying it's individualized. It's individualized to the individual and how I know them and I how I get so. to know them. So Otherwise, it feels formulaic, right? Or it feels like you went course. to a coaching class. So you're walking yep. me through your process. I mean, do not walk Scott Miller through your framework, right? right. I will call you out. Life is too short, right? right? I am me and you are you. Let's have a conversation. I think, I think my advice to people would be, you know, everyone wants a leader they can relate to. Mm -hmm. Gone are the days of hierarchical, you know, there's no loyalty. Anyway, there's no respect that way. People want to relate to their leader. Mm -hmm. They want to be able to have a vulnerable, crucial conversation where we talk openly and honestly about our fears, our passions, our joys, our dreams, mm -hmm. our, you know, what we're scared about. Mm -hmm why we're thinking this without being intimidated or insulted. That's a great coach is someone who can create an environment where the other person can be vulnerable enough 
to just say, I don't know why I'm thinking this, or here's why I'm thinking this. You know, what are your thoughts? Right. That's the kind of leader I want to work for. Well, yeah, me too. And and it and it really comes down to what you just said, which is, have we made it safe for people to be able to tell the truth or to be yeah. open to their vulnerabilities, yeah. which is yet another challenge you you mentioned in the it's book, yeah. right? And and do people feel safe? Do I trust the leader's motive? Do I trust that they're really looking out for me? Um, and, and whether I want to divulge or engage with that individual really based on that relationship and whether there is trust there. Max, you're so calming. I think you should read like subliminal nighttime stories because you're, my blood pressure is so low with you. <laughs> you're awesome. a great interviewer. I like the tone of your voice. I know I, I don't calm anyone as you can tell. I incite people, right? For good and for bad. But you just have a very soothing, calming style. I like you. Well, thank you. My I, sheep are more emotionally mature than yours are, but that's a different <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to come visit your sheep. I'm gonna have to come visit your sheep. <laughs> All of my sheep are hanging in my wife's closet in the form of sweaters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well well I'll tell you, it's it's a it's a great journey. I mean, and as I mentioned, you know, before we started the show actually, but I really wanted my kids to learn new things. And so for me, the farm is really a system, and it's one of the pieces actually I want to ask you in the challenges, which is, and it's one of the system challenge. You say, ensure your systems support your mission. Yeah. And, and for me, I have a hobby farm, but I did it because it's not making us any money. I mean, it barely breaks even if that, but, but what it does do is it, it provides a system that supports my mission, which is I want to teach my kids about responsibility, yeah. hard work. I want them to know that every day there's something more important than just taking care of themselves. And that those animals rely on my kids every day showing up and doing the right thing. Right? I mean, I really want them to know that. So the system has to support the mission. And that's one of the challenges you put out there. Dude, you're shaming me in your parenting strategy. You're a deliberate parent. <laughs> no, man. I, my We're wife trying. and I have three boys, six, eight, and ten. How's homeschooling going? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not. My boys go to a private school, so okay. ask how that $6,000 a month is going, right? <laughs> Out the door, brother. Good grief. <laughs> hey, different story. Sorry. Um, I digress. Imagine that. Oh, my word. I just imagined how fun this could be. I think we need to do this on a weekly basis. I'm just getting I this mean, vibe, man. <laughs> I, we need a parenting podcast. <laughs> this I know. is awesome. Um, Challenge 25 is ensure your systems support your mission. Yeah. I took the tack a little bit differently from the chapter. I don't talk a lot about how to design systems, right? Mm -hmm. What I do talk a lot about is systems are in place for reasons. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us in organizations get a bit cocky. Well, I don't know why that system is that way. And 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 we start to tear it down when the fact of the matter is, most systems are designed by smart, well-intentioned people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that before we start to go and criticize systems or break systems down or, or you know, demonstrate our bravado, mm-hmm. our arrogance, go over and ask employee reimbursement. So tell me about this process. Why did you design it this way? Because I'm finding it frustrating, but I'm going to assume good intent because I am sure you thought through all these things, right? Mm-hmm. As, I think as you're thinking about systems – Assume good intent. Mm -hmm. Assume that the person designing it wasn't an idiot, like you Mm -hmm. probably called them in their absence. Mm -hmm. Assume that they had some particular interest and knowledge base. They were designing it purposefully. And perhaps if it's no longer supporting the mission of the organization, it might have been designed four or five years ago when some other problems were in place, Mm -hmm. and now it's become outdated. Be part of the problem was my big point. Sorry. Be part of the solution. Right. My big point in the chapter was don't just be a problem identifier. Mm -hmm. 
be a solution provider. If the mm-hmm. biggest advice I had to give anyone in their career is for every problem you identify, bring your leader four or five solutions. Mm-hmm. Don't just be the complainant or the irritant or the sand in the oyster, right? If we're all trying to create a pearl, don't just be the problem identifier. Because you know what? I know all the problems here at Franklin Covey. Mm-hmm. You're not going to actually tell me many problems I don't know about. Mm-hmm. I'm paying you to bring solutions to solve those problems so that those systems Mm -hmm. are better aligned to the mission. So a lot of it was around assuming good intent, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. which was listening, which was understanding. So this system was created to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. Got it. What if we did this and this and this? Could it help to solve this problem now, right? And I think it's it's it's, again, this sort of calibrated understanding that if everyone is clear on the mission of the organization, mm-hmm. you might choose to shut down some systems. Mm-hmm. You might choose to recalibrate some systems or to streamline some systems. Systems are important to building cultural imperatives, right? Culture is most often defined as how the vast majority of people behave the vast majority of time. Yep. People don't quit bad systems. That's right. They quit corrupt cultures. Mm-hmm. They quit bad bosses. Mm-hmm. Great leaders, great cultures are willing to check their ego and say, you know what? I designed that system. Mm-hmm. If it's outdated, create a new one. Mm-hmm. That my ego, my value isn't tied to that system staying in its place. One final thought around this. One of my favorite books I've ever read is a book called How Will You Measure Your Life? Mm-hmm. Co-authored by the late Professor Clayton Christensen and his writing partner, Karen Dillon, who's a friend of mine, the former editor of the Harvard Business Review. Mm -hmm. This book called How You Measure Your Life basically takes business principles Mm -hmm. and applies them in our personal lives. And one of the business principles that they talked about was some research that showed that 93% of organizations that achieved, quote, financial success, Mm -hmm. by some measure I forget, achieved that financial success to what they called an emergent strategy and not a deliberate strategy, meaning organizations that have achieved wild success did so with a strategy that was not the one they set out with. Mm -hmm. It was one that they uncovered along the way. Oh, that's not working. Let's try this. Mm -hmm. The same is applied to systems, right? You have systems that perhaps were in place for a right reason. Mm -hmm. Maybe even the mission of your organization has changed. As a leader, check your ego. Check your connectedness to a lot of the systems that you might have placed in, um, put in place, and now your distance from them is greater, and you don't have the same perspective now. Be willing to let things that were, quote, your legacy fall by the wayside and be calibrated more nimbly with an emergent strategy. Long answer, I apologize, but it's an insight that I've learned. Well, I think it's a big one and checking the ego, it, it does come back to how the leader manages this because we fall in love with things sometimes that are our babies, right? And we defend all them the at all costs. All the time. Exactly. That's right. I mean, I was the former chief marketing officer eight years in that role. Mm-hmm. I stepped aside on my own initiation. That wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was fairly smooth. My junior person to me, who was the vice president of marketing, came up. And he's doing all kinds of things I disagreed with Mm -hmm. and doing all kinds of things I never thought of. Mm -hmm. And he's put all kinds of systems in place that I was not capable of, right? Mm -hmm. He's far eclipsed me. And the best way for me to serve him is to not share my opinion, Mm -hmm. not backbite, not undercut him. 
I've not been flawless at that. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've risen to the occasion sometimes, mm-hmm. but I've now watched systems that I had to work enormously politically hard to put in place be ended overnight. Mm-hmm. Times have changed. Mm-hmm. The business no longer needs that system. And I had, you know, sometimes my feelings hurt. You have no idea how much political capital it took for me to put that system in place. How dare you? Mm-hmm. I look back and I say, you know what? That's not my legacy. My legacy will be how did I deal with that new system being ended or that old system being ended and a new one putting place, right? They don't define me. And when I find myself being petty, Max, yeah. or being jealous or insecure, yeah. it's because my, I find my legacy is connected to that system, yeah. which at the right time, it was the right system. Sure. It is no longer the right system. That's right. Maybe and I'm giving your. Maybe I'm. I'm patronizing your audience, but these are hard lessons that I've learned. Well, they are hard lessons, and the, and 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 well, it is a little bit. You know, it, sometimes we get into the tactical in order to understand how to move best steps forward, right? And and the truth is, is that there are some legacy systems that haven't served us well for a while, and we need to have the confidence to say we could tweak that system. And it doesn't mean we have to abandon everything wholeheartedly. Sometimes it's just a little tweak. Other times it's a readjustment. Other times I look at that and I say, you know what, we've been measuring that, and that's been really bad for us. It's actually creating a lot of competition in a team where we need teamwork, <laughs> you yeah. know? So yeah. what are we doing to help prove that? You know, a couple more maybe, and one of the other challenges, and then you actually finalize the the, the book with a, a small little piece on character. And, and so I just wanted to talk about that as well. But to get better, to continuously improve is so important. Um, and, and there's, again, so many challenges here. I would encourage, you know, listeners to read the book and, and see the different challenges here. I've skipped over, <clears throat> excuse me, I've skipped over a bunch of them, but we've, we, we have a limited amount of time today. But getting better and continuously improving, I think, comes back to everything you've just talked about. Anything you would add now that you've written the book um, in terms of what yeah. you've learned? Yes. Since so, challenge thirty was get better. Yeah. And I take a pretty bold position. And I and I and I, I think if I remember correctly, I don't talk about just you know going to conferences and mm-hmm. reading magazines, listening to podcasts. I think I use the word damn. I said, go get your own damn podcast. Go write your own damn book. Go write your own damn LinkedIn article. Sorry, three damns in one, one point. <laughs> I, I say you know move outside the traditional comfort zone. You know yeah. radically disrupt yourself. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to write a book. I've written or co-written now two bestsellers. I have four books in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. I'd never written a book before. Mm-hmm. The most I'd done was written a term paper in high school, a bunch of press releases, and got better and better and better at it and started writing some blogs on LinkedIn. So I, I say to people and evangelize, you know, if you're going to radically improve your skill set, you've got to disrupt your comfort level. Yeah, You've got to move beyond the natural, right? It takes $10 to host a podcast. Go buy yourself a headset at Walmart mm-hmm. and go host a podcast. Mm-hmm. Whatever topic you're passionate about, right? Host your own podcast, write mm-hmm. your own article, write your own book, go speak, go organize your own conference virtually right now, yeah. right? Use Zoom or whatever, just Facebook Live. So I would really encourage people to step out of the traditional. Dory Clark is a famous author and she wrote a bunch of books around disrupting yourself and mm-hmm. reimagining your brand. And she said something I thought was profound on the podcast that I host for Franklin Covey called On Leadership. She said, maybe a little bit right or wrong, she said, you know what? Most ideas have been invented. There aren't, so there aren't major disruptions to technology. Of course, there'll be new inventions. She said, the people that are getting traction are, are 
following this idea of what is your twist mm-hmm. on an already great idea. Don't get overwhelmed that you've got to enter, you know, invent the next, you know, webmd.com or the next, you know, bonobos.com. Mm-hmm. What is your twist mm-hmm. on an already good idea to make it better? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way you actually can improve your skill sets is don't get overwhelmed. You don't have to be Einstein. Yeah. Look at my SAT score. Not Einstein. But I've twisted a couple of things and been quite proud, and they've had enormous impact on people by buying my books and you know booking me for keynotes like you and mm-hmm. hosting podcasts. Well, it's awesome, you know, and it's funny because you we run in some similar circles. Liz Wiseman's a good friend of mine as well, yeah, and yeah. and uh, Whitney Johnson with Disrupt Yourself, yes, yeah. you know, and your work. I've been with on Whitney's that. podcast. She's uh-huh. been on mine. Yeah, she wrote the book Disrupt Yourself. Right? She did yeah. great work, and I and I had the opportunity to interview Clayton Christensen and Karen when the wow, book first came out. Did you? Yes. Uh, on how will you measure your life? And of course, I'm honored to be in their company on your eight podcast. years ago, right? Thank I mean, you, that was Max, that was yeah. a long time ago now, but. Um, but you know, so many good conversations, so many, and I love what you're saying. Like, let's go out there and try something new. And sometimes it's not going to be comfortable. There's going to be things we're going to do that will be a little bit scary. And I'll tell you one of the things that we're doing that's scary at our house. We, we just started bees, beehives. I mean, colonies of bees. We have no idea what we're doing. And I had my 11-year-old son and I in in bee-covered coats yesterday, dumping bees into a, a brand new hive. And Is this the kind of thing you practice in real time on? I'm just saying, we are practicing in real time. We are practicing in real time. We, 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 we skipped the YouTube videos and went right to real time. But we're learning so much from this. And I'm not saying everyone has to go out and do that. But what you just said, you know, buy the headset, go try something new, you know, run a webinar. Disrupt yourself just a little bit is really, really good message. Let's let's kind of wrap this together today. Character is so important, and you mentioned it. You know that if you don't have character, you can try these thirty things, and and they're all very helpful. I I loved all of them, but character it comes down to a foundation of character. Could you just talk about that a little bit, and then maybe some last advice for for folks who really are kind of stuck right now or trying to figure out, you know, maybe they feel yeah. like, Scott, it's easy for you to say, you know, you're a senior leader at a, at a big company, you're well-established, you're taken care of, you got this family, everything seems to be good for you, but you don't understand they where I'm mistaken. at. mistaken. You know they what I mean? mistaken. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So let's yeah. clarify that. Yeah. I think that's I helpful will. for listeners. Yeah. Max, I wrote a book called Management Mess <laughs> to Leadership Success, right? 40,000 people have now bought this book in mm-hmm. less than a year. If anybody thinks that I'm all set or uh, they'd be mistaken, Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, my whole life has been kind of two steps forward, three steps back, right? But I just keep going and outworking people typically, not outsmarting anybody. What keeps you going when you get knocked off, when you get knocked off in those three steps back? What gets you forward again? Jealousy, frustration, (laughs) natural talents, right? Yeah, honestly. Now, I'm not going to say passion or mission. Usually it's jealousy or anger or relatable human emotions or I'll show you, right? I mean, no, truly. Um, The sweetest revenge is happiness or success, right? So to your point about character, it was not one of the challenges because it kind of felt trite. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. As I've been in this company for 25 years now, I really mm-hmm. have learned the value of, as a leader, modeling strong character, right? Have I made decisions that were bad? I have. Have I cut corners in life? Of course I have, right? Um, I'd like to think that my character is strong. I associate people that have better character than me so that I gravitate to a higher standard. I find myself when I am with people who have less good character than I, I gravitate towards their character and start to begin cutting corners as well. Hmm. So I choose to associate myself with people 
that I think are better than me and mm. aspire to their level. I do that very deliberately. I call it friending up. Mm. I, write, I, write, I write a lot about the concept of friending up. Character is your ticket to the game, right? I mean, character isn't a talent. It's really your reputation. Yeah. Your reputation is, in essence, the collection of all the decisions you make in life mm-hmm. and your willingness to admit when you cut a corner mm-hmm. or when you made a mistake or don't try to always cover it up. Mm-hmm. Use it as a teaching moment. Own your mess, as I've said. So character is foundational, right? It takes a lifetime to build it, a minute to destroy it. Be very yeah. cautious around who's watching you. Yeah. Be cautious around who's not watching you. Because, you know, who you are in the dark is the same as who you are in the light. People just can't see you. As it relates to your bigger question, here's what I would say to people who might be need to get unstuck. And all of us are, you know, stuck or unstuck at certain times. Mm-hmm. Life is seasons, right? There's seasons of balance. There's seasons of imbalance. There's seasons of being stuck. There's seasons of being unstuck. I think the biggest lesson I learned from Dr. Covey was this idea of differentiating between being efficient and being effective. Mm -hmm. He wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Mm -hmm. He did not write the book, often misquoted by people, The Seven Habits of Highly Efficient People. One of the things I'm great at in life is I'm a very efficient person, Max. Mm. I'm very productive. I'm hardworking. I get up at 3 a.m. I write my ink column from 3 to 4. I write my books from 4 to 6. I'm mm-hmm. a dad from 6 to 8. I'm an officer at a company from 8 to 6. Mm-hmm. I'm a dad from you know 6 to 8 again, and I write again, right? And I'm podcasting and reading books the next interview. I'm a very efficient, productive person. Mm-hmm. I like to do things fast and quick, check things off. I'm the guy that gets to Home Depot at 6 in the morning. The marigolds are in my car by 6.20. They're planted by 7. The car is washed by 8. I'm ready to go play tennis by 9. In many areas of my life, this efficiency mindset has served me well. Mm-hmm. It's how I've written all these books and how I've done these podcasts, right? You can relate. You got cows and goats and fish mm-hmm. and sheep and bees. My, my, my sheep are better than yours. <laughs> What's the important lesson is not to confuse Mm -hmm. when to be efficient with Mm -hmm. when to be effective Mm -hmm. because you cannot be efficient in your relationships Mm -hmm. with your colleagues, your children, people you work with, your boss. You have to slow down. Mm -hmm. You cannot have an efficiency mindset when it comes to your people. So if anybody is struggling with your influence – You're struggling in your business. You're struggling Mm -hmm. with your employees. You're struggling in your marriage, with your mother-in-law, with your neighbor, with your children. Ask yourself, am I trying to impose my efficiency mindset, how I rake the yard, how I send texts, how I wash the cars, with how I treat my children? Dr. Covey said, with people, slow is fast. Mm -hmm. Fast is slow. You will see a transformative impact on your influence in your relationships if you slow down with people. The next time you're in a meeting, take off your glasses, turn off your phone, close your laptop, take the time. When your wife comes in or your husband comes in, your kids come in, don't try to move them to solution real fast. Don't try to fix it for them. Mm -hmm. Don't foist your genius on them. Mm -hmm. Be the genius maker of others. Listen, be thoughtful, don't interrupt. Don't offer a solution. Just validate their process. Mm -hmm. 
that 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 I think is Dr. Covey's big gift to the world is understanding that people that are highly effective take their time. I think it was the YouTube sensation Brendan Bouchard mm-hmm. who had a bunch of famous books including the recent one was High Performance Habits. He mm-hmm. said ne- nearly everything in life is better done slower. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love that. And I love that that's the way, I, I can't think of a better way to finish. Um, I, I often say it, I tweet it a lot, but sometimes our most important agenda is not our agenda at all. It's theirs. And I, wow. I think yeah. that that's the pause that you're talking about. It's, it's not, sometimes it's, it's not my agenda. The most, my most important agenda sometimes is honoring someone else's agenda. And it's counterintuitive. It is. We're taught to clarify and communicate and, you know, mission, vision and values and systems and structures and strategies. And here's the goal and goal and then repeat it again. And when you're just think they've got it, they've got it 50%. So keep them on your agenda, right? And you're in influence mode and persuasion mode. And those are good skills to have, mm-hmm. but when we, but when that's our default, when we're always in influence mode and we're in persuasion mode and we're on our agenda, that's not how you influence people, especially those people that are dearest to you. Yeah, that may have a different journey than you have. Scott Miller, thank you for Max being on Brown, the show thank today. You. Good luck with those. Good luck with those selfish sheep you've got, brother. Well, I'll tell you when you and those bees. When good you grief. take good care of them, the farm is amazing. <laughs> it is it's called awesome. The law of the harvest, right? It's called the law of the harvest. It really is. It really is. And it, you know, it's it's just great. It's great for the learning for my kids right now. It's certainly a lot of work for sure. And uh, and it you know time and a season for this right now for us. It's yeah, good. Sure. But but for us, Scott, I'm just grateful for this conversation. I'm grateful we were able to connect today and have this conversation. So thank you for joining me on the Purpose and Principles podcast. My honor. Thank you, Max. Thank you. Have a great day and be safe.